Hello. This is required viewing. Wow, bow. I just wanted some bow. So you're saying that secret there are restaurants on Uber? Secret restaurants on Uber. So there, there are restaurants posing as other restaurants to try to get people to buy more food. Like Chuck E. Cheese was found out to be yeah. like something, something pizza. Like the mouse pizza they found out is actually Chuck E. Cheese. Oh my God. Like Mario's pizza or some stupid. Is it Chuck E. Cheese with a mustache? No, but people, <laughs> the Uber driver showed up and they were at Chuck E. Cheese just getting pizza. And so the person was like, did you just bring me Chuck E. Cheese pizza? And then Applebee's, Applebee's is on the sly selling their wings only as, what was it? Um, wing paws wing instead of company wing or something. The wing company. Oh my yeah. God. No, it's really dumb. Yeah. No, there have been a number of well, restaurants. Well, think about it. So it's restaurants inside of a restaurant. It's a meta restaurant. Like the Starbucks inside of a grocery store or. But it's not though. You have to have a separate license for that shit. A separate LLC. If you're going to have a restaurant inside of a restaurant, just because Starbucks is in Safeway doesn't mean Starbucks and Safeway aren't two separate entities. No, that's what I mean is I wonder if but they're setting it up as a separate entity not. within their They're own? selling their own food under a different name <sighs> to get more interest. But I wonder if they're doing it under the guise of that where they're like, oh, it's just like a Starbucks, but it's really their you're own You're scrolling food. through Uber and you... Are like oh the only things that are open right now are Wings Now and Applebee's and fucking I hate Applebee's. So I'm gonna go to Wings, wings now. now. Surprise! And then it's the Applebee's Wings. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> so that's what's happening in life right now. This is Gotcha so, Eats is what wow, it is. Wow Bao is the Asian restaurant down the street and not the actual Wow Bao like, restaurant. I bet it's yeah. I bet it says it's, that it's one. like a couple blocks down the road. I was like the only. <laughs> Asian restaurant a couple blocks down the road is suspiciously Asian. <laughs> they serve way too many. It's just a very eclectic menu. As of Will Asian. Ferrell once told Jerry Seinfeld, you know a restaurant is good when they have everything on the menu and they do all the things. So that's so funny because Gordon Ramsay says, you know a restaurant's bad if their menu is too big and they have everything on the menu. Oh, it was sarcasm. Oh, okay. I was like, <laughs> it was definitely a sarcasm. Wait a minute. You're not like, supposed to. You know it's good when there's everything oh, yeah, on there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway. Because you imagine that it takes, you know, certain chefs... Ages to perfect a good burger, ages to perfect a good taco or whatever it is. But these people can do burgers, tacos, hot dogs, pizza, Chinese food, Indian food. You're like, wait a minute. Hold on. Hold on. Unless you have a five-star chef for each of the cuisines that you are selling to me. I don't believe you. I somehow found myself on Kitchen Nightmare TikTok where it's just clips of Gordon Ramsay's show just Kitchen yelling at And he's like, he asks this chick, he's like, so I'm really confused about your menu. What do you serve here? Is this American? Is this Asian? Is this Indian? And the waitress looked really confused herself. And she goes, yeah, it's like American fusion. <laughs> I just imagine because they had everything. They had like a three-page <laughs> menu with like twelve-point font and just bullets. They had everything. They had Asian. They had Middle Eastern food. They had Indian food. They had burgers. If you they can't answer it simply, everything. what do you do? 
and there's a question mark at the end of your explanation. I don't think it's a very good explanation. But do you think, like, as a woman, as women who have gone places, if we roll up and something is not what it appears, we are leaving. But as an Uber driver, if you roll up to a restaurant that says it's the wing company and it's Applebee's, and then there's like a little cardboard sign and Sharpie written that says the wing company. So the one that made the news was Mm -hmm. the Chuck E. Cheese incident. That's what I'm calling it is the Chuck E. Cheese incident. Also, I watched a documentary about, well, it was a John Oliver. It was a 30 minute John Oliver documentary about Chuck E. Cheese. It's online. It's well worth your 30 minutes. It's fascinating <laughs> but Chuck E. cheese like if i was an uber driver or a lyft driver or whatever if i was going to pick up this food and i rolled up at a chucky e. cheese to pick up some food and it didn't say chucky e. cheese i would immediately call the customer and say hey do you realize that this food is coming from chucky e. cheese i would call Did you the company and be like buy that where am i going you're sending me somewhere i don't it doesn't where you send me is not what it says on the app Something is wrong. Am I going to get murdered? Are you going to tell my family that I was on an Uber Eats run and that I got murked because, surprise, mouse pizza is actually (laughs) Chuck E. Cheese. Man, corporate America. Gotta love it. You know, that's a real problem. Speaking of corporate America, corporate overlords, welcome back to the Required Viewing Podcast. (laughs) I'm Aaron. And I'm Chloe. This week, we're capping off our season. Over the last nine episodes, we've shown a spotlight on actors and actresses who have had to hide their multicultural heritage in one way or another to get gigs in Tinseltown. So on this last episode of the season, we wanted to take a small look at, well, the problem. (laughs) One uh, one of... A problem. (laughs) A big problem. We already touched on some of the worst cultural depictions of people in Hollywood going all the way back to season one with the jazz singer and birth of a nation. We also watched breakfast at Tiffany's and 16 candles. All these films are considered classics, but how much harm are they actually doing? What does misrepresentation do to people's outlook on other cultures? Today we are watching three movies that truly highlight the systematic issue of casting based on race. What are the movies you ask? The Mask of Fu Manchu from 1932. Short Circuit from 1986. And The Last Samurai. 2003. (laughs) It just feels like... I don't like Tom Cruise. We're going to get into it. I have so many fucking opinions about that goddamn movie. (laughs) We can't have too many awkward upsetting pauses because people can't see us they're just gonna be like i know are my headphones still working no i know <laughs> we're just giving a lot of side eye are you ready to just dive in i don't have a ton at the top to of the show talk about the problems of what systemic racial problems of america <laughs> it's not a great <laughs> am intro i ready to that. talk about it <laughs> <laughs> like you don't talk about it like every day of your life seriously <laughs> Honestly, we're going to see today almost exclusively misrepresentation of Asian cultures. Yeah. Today's movies are really highlighting Asian and Pacific Islanders and all different sort of Asian countries. So You want to know why, though? I think because at the start of cinema, 
we already highlighted blacks in film. Well, this first movie is still pretty early on in cinema's history. So I feel like the two most disparaged peoples that I think just get the worst representation are Asians and African-Americans. Like the Chinese built a great deal of this country and were treated like shit. Mm Mm-hmm just like African-Americans. I feel like those were, at the time that these movies were being made, those were the bottom rung. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I guess what I'm saying is at the start of this podcast, when we focused on the beginning of cinema, we didn't have to, like, we're focusing on the misrepresentation of Asian cultures now because we already covered the misrepresentation of black cultures. And within the scope of this season, on these bookends, we've covered a lot of Hispanic and Latin culture Mm -hmm. as well. So I feel like we're getting a nice mix mix and Mm -hmm. touch of misrepresentation across all all boys. Don't get me wrong. We haven't even touched on all of it. There's no way that we could possibly touch on all of it in one season. I just, I feel like we can't really talk anymore until we dive into this movie because this movie's pretty gnarly. This movie is a lot. It's only... 68 minutes and they get a lot done in 68 minutes you ready here we go it's like someone saying i'm gonna whoop your ass i only have 60 minutes but i'm gonna get a lot of ass whooping done in 60 minutes and they do (laughs) sir dennis nayland smith of the british secret service warns egyptologist sir lionel barton that he must beat Fu Manchu in the race to find the tomb for Genghis Khan. Fu Manchu intends to use the sword and mask to proclaim himself the reincarnation of the legendary conqueror and inflame the peoples of Asia and the Middle East into war and wipe out the quote-unquote white race. It was really hard to get that plot point because I was so <laughs> distracted by what I was watching. Mm-hmm. Sir Lionel is kidnapped soon after and taken to Fu Manchu himself. Fu Manchu tries bribing his captive, even offering his own daughter, which is really gross. He's like, here, take my child. I'll, I'll just even give her give you my you. own daughter. He says it like the skin off my back, but he's like the daughter off my pr- whatever. It's gross. Her name is Fa Lo Si. Played by Myrna Loy. Mm-hmm. When that fails, Barton suffers the, quote, torture of the bell. Which in, to me is very comical and reminds me of Princess Bride. They just strap him to a table underneath a big bell and it's like the water torture scene from... It gave me Princess Bride vibes. I thought it was very entertaining. I thought it was funny as shit. I feel like that would be where they send the people that disappoint the Taco Bell employees. Huh? You have to live under the bell. <laughs> you have it wrong every 60 seconds. The bell that calls to all the stoners that tacos are ready. To the bell. The stoners and vegans. Fun story, strapping him and just making him listen to bell music <laughs> constantly <laughs> did not work. It was not effective in torture. And he did not reveal the location of the tomb. Barton's daughter. Would you have revealed the location from no, that bell torture? I, I would have started singing. Carol <laughs> the bells. <laughs> do, 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 do. Let's get some chimes in here, motherfucker. Flip the script, annoy them. <laughs> <laughs> Dong, dong. I try to <laughs> harmonize with it. 
<laughs> Reverse psychology, take this. I love this shit. Bells are my jam. Make it louder. Give me more bells. I dare you. Barton's daughter, Sheila, insists on taking her father's place in the expedition as she knows where the tomb is. She finds the tomb and its treasures with the help of her fiancé, Terrence Terry. Terrence. Terry. Terry. I love you, Terry. But it was the way you said it at the end of the movie. You're like, I love you, Terry. <laughs> so Terry Grainville, Von Berg, and McLeod, that is the name of all of their cohorts. Okay. Nyland Smith joins them soon after. McLeod is killed by one of Fu Manchu's men during a robbery attempt. After McLeod kills one of Fu Manchu's men, it's a real fun scene. He like chucks a knife at the guy and then he shoots the guy and then they both die. <laughs> You're like, well, that was <laughs> it's funny. This movie's funny. Minus then, all the racism. I was like, and then it isn't. Then it isn't. <laughs> An emissary offers to trade Barton for the priceless artifacts. Despite Terry's misgivings, Sheila persuades him to take the relics to Fu Manchu without Smith's knowledge. <gasps> However, when Fu Manchu tests the sword, he determines that it is a fake. Nylon had switched them, just so you know. It was a switcheroo. It was a switcheroo. Terry is whipped under the supervision of Fa Lo Si, who is attracted to him and totally turned on as she's screaming, faster, faster, and then they untie him, and she definitely takes him into another room to rape him, and she tells him as much. She says, I am going to use you, and then I'm going to give you back to my father, and he's watching the whole time. But before she uses him, her father's like, wait, before you use your usual traditions or whatever it is, She's like, oh, do you still need him? And he's yeah. like, yeah. I was like, she's this like, exchange she, is really awkward. Because she's straddling him while she's talking to her dad. I still, and she's like, wait, okay, before I'll, you, fine, before I'll dismount. You, before you engage, <laughs> before, you, before you mount the rocket, could you please, I, I still need him for some of my dastardly deeds. I need to turn him into a zombie. <laughs> I needed him to do some shit and then I'll give him back to you. I'll be like, so I don't want to fuck a zombie. Right? Oh, God. Just someone who's been physically maimed. You know what it is? They try to distract you with the racism, but much like the jazz singer, the real disturbing thing is the father-daughter relationship. The, the mother-son relationship. Yes. Yeah. yes. We're going to talk about that at the end. I got some Ooh, notes. Okay. I got okay. some notes. Okay. I got some notes. Notes for the incest. Anyway, meanwhile, Fu Manchu has Barton's corpse literally delivered to his daughter, Sheila, with a big old tattoo of a snake dragon thing on his head because it was just some vaguely sort of maybe Asian symbol. I love what in the 30s what they thought was Asian. Yeah, I it's... have a note about that too. <laughs> <laughs> when Nyland tries to rescue Terry, he's taken captive as well. Terry is injected with a serum that makes him temporarily obedient to Fu Manchu and released. He tells Sheila and Von Berg that Nyland Smith wants them to bring the sword and mask to him. Sheila senses something is wrong, but Von Berg digs up the old relics, the real ones at least, and they follow Terry into the trap. No questions asked. So let's do this, Terry. Captured by Fu Manchu, the party is sentenced to death or enslavement, but not before Sheila manages to bring Terry back to his senses. Sheila is 
to become a human sacrifice. Nyland is to be lowered into a crocodile pit. Von Berg is placed between two sets of metal spikes, inching slowly at a very annoyingly slow pace towards each other. <laughs> like, so long that I could untie myself and leave before they got close enough. Anyway, Terry is prepared for another dose of the serum, which will make him a permanent slave of Fu Manchu's daughter. However... Nyland manages to free himself, Terry and Von Berg, using one of Fu Manchu's own weapons, a death ray that shoots an electrical current. And the men incapacitate the archvillain as he rises the sword to execute Sheila. Sheila, such a sexy name. <laughs> Sheila! Las Vegas. Sheila. I just think of like a woman in a trailer park with a cigarette and like ratty short shorts and her legs are all bruised because she got drunk and fell over the night before. That's Sheila. I think of Sheila. I gotta rescue Sheila. <laughs> like Chappelle show. He's like Sheila. <laughs> just saying it all hard. When Fu Manchu is electrocuted. He drops the sword. Terry picks it up and literally fucking hacks him to death. He just whacks away. Terry's been through a lot. While Terry frees Sheila and carries her away with all this extra strength he has after hacking away the villain. <laughs> and being tortured. <laughs> and being tortured. <laughs> and, He's ra just gonna and raped nearly toss to Toss this bitch over his shoulder and leave. Boop. Super easy. Nyland throws the sword over the side so that the world can be safe from any future Boo Manchu. And I love at the end, they're like, are you a doctor? And the dude taking the picture is like, no. Uh, no. <laughs> they're scared of Asians now. So any Asian, they're like, are you an Asian doctor? At the beginning of the film, Boris Karloff has this weird, wonderful line where he's telling the the dad, the one that he kills, he's like, I'm a doctor of philosophy from Cambridge, and I'm a doctor of this Yeah, but are you Harvard. Fu Manchu? <laughs> yeah, the question was, are you Fu Manchu? Which has a very direct yes or no answer. And then he just gave a big old exposition. Bitch, that's not the question I asked you. Anyway. So why should we give a shit? Why should we give a shit about, <laughs> about this crazy movie? The mask of Fu Manchu? Well, to your point, that happened a lot. There was a lot of Americans being like, so what are you trying to tell me? And then a lot of Asian exposition. Okay, but, but let's put this or it could be that girl, or it could be something some, else. Anytime like, we say Asian exposition for the next few minutes, all of these people with lines that are quote unquote Asian are definitely British. Okay, and, so heavy air quotes. I can't signal air quotes through the airwaves. The only but, Asians in this movie are the dudes in the back with no lines. And in the restaurant, there's some women and men in the restaurant. Oh, they get a few seconds to... Before they like have them run for their lives which is usually the other main character that they get to play is Obnoxious. fleeing townspeople so why this why why this movie why is this movie so saucy it's a pre-code film that has themes of sexual sadism there's nudity at this time nudity was still kind of a gray that's what I was when we were watching it. I was <laughs> like, like those naked doors. Oh, that's that's the nudity. The nudity. I was like, and not the really... dude who's like trying to bust out of his loincloth because right that was the writhing nudity around I was looking for this also was... Asian hate <laughs> and white hate to <laughs> a point to a point. But I don't know. I mean, if it wasn't so offensive, it would be beautiful. It really would be. It's got that. It's that a science. It's a it. pulp fiction story. It's a it's a 
It's a science fiction, that early War of the Worlds type fantastic planet. But sort they over seasoned is what happened. You know, that's when someone puts a great way right, to put they that. Put too much salt in it. And it's like when you taste something that's supposed to be sweet and you're MSG. like, ooh, you switch. <laughs> Oh my god! Too much. Of- <laughs> it's like when somebody switches it out. Either they overseas it, or they like, oh, I thought it was sugar, but it was really salt. And you're like, oh. I mean, no one. This movie had a problem when it came out. There were, and this wasn't <laughs> even you know, at the time. Like at the time, yeah. So when this movie was released, the Republic of China and the Chinese Embassy in Washington launched a formal complaint against the film for its hostile depiction of Chinese. The speech where Fu Manchu tells his followers to quote kill the white man and take his women end quote is slinged out for strong criticism some other critics also object to all the sexuality and violence and the weird they object to the kill the white man but nothing else well yeah basically (laughs) they said kill the white man i'm offended all the other stuff the people portraying other cultures not that but well and the sex they weren't really into the sex yeah um, and then it was re-released in 1972 for some fucking reason. Had a big re-release. <laughs> really? Okay. <laughs> big re-release party. They're like, it's a classic, you guys. We got a new wave of protests, this time from Japanese American Citizens League, which stated that the movie was offensive and demeaning to Asian Americans. Consequently, several scenes were cut from the VHS release in 1992. These included the most problematic material, such as the Kill White Man speech, mm-hmm. as well as the scenes where Fola C is in that, like, oh, faster, harder, faster. Right, they cut around. that shit out. Yeah, and then in the early 2000s, when it was re-released on DVD, they put all that shit back in there, <laughs> which is why we get to see the full uncut white all hatred. The, all the good bits. Her creaming on that dude. Ew, gross. <laughs> Speaking of which, can we just take a moment to talk about this daughter? Oh, I want to talk about her so much. This bitch is insane. This is just insane. So Myrna Loy plays Follow C. This is it's like peak cringe for me because just her portrayal is gross. She's hyper hyper sexualized. But the biggest thing that I can't get over is the cultural gender inconsistencies. Something that we talked about right before hitting record on this was the fact that women weren't able to be that outspoken in most Asian cultures. Mm-hmm. It's very much a... We all watch Mulan, girl. <laughs> yeah. I've seen Mulan. I know what they're supposed to Where be. Where is this girl I see? Not letting me speak up for myself. Yeah, that's what the whole movie is about. That's why the live action Aladdin is not believable. She has a whole fucking song about I'm how she was a strong wants to... woman in the middle east yeah and her whole thing is <laughs> literally like it. let me have a word and you're like you know what this song is really making me want to take your words away though so could you just could you stop i just it's that idea of taking that bothered you more than the british rolling of the r's yeah it just well because the extra you british get, you it's it's a microaggression it's a form of micro, except it's not that micro. So I feel like if there's a, something in between micro and macro, it's that. <laughs> but the fact that you're taking your ideals, your perspectives, your constructs and your culture of gender and putting it into another culture, you're not doing the work. You're not seeing the differences. You're not doing this culture justice, which I know that wasn't their intent to begin with, obviously. But that is one of the ways where they were doing a cultural 
injustice. And they made him a doctor. So I guess that was their way of, of making up for thrice it. Thrice over. They made him a doctor thrice over. So, you know, he's smart. He's a smart adversary as opposed to a stupid one because nobody and wants wordly, to be beat by all of his all of his degrees were from colleges all over not just like america and then he just came back home to beijing and doubled down on, <laughs> on whatever it is that he felt he needed to do in what world would the daughter of any leader like this have so much say be so prominent and also be in charge of torture and also have a real chill conversation with her father. Like, hey, dad, I'm fucking him. He's like, actually, before you fuck him, I'd like to fuck him. It's really like I know, but her dad gave her men to fuck. He was always like, I'm going to give you to my daughter. But that was confusing. He made it sound like he was like, I'll give you my daughter. Like he was very giving first them one, to her. But really, so the, the very first the interaction with them. that guy. Yeah. He was like, I'm going to give you my daughter. But every other time lie. that kind of vibe comes up, he. He's telling the men that he's going to give them to her mm-hmm. so they can be used by her at her And pleasure. that was, I need, feel like they needed to add the sexuality into it because we all know, at least within Chinese cultures, maybe we don't all know this, that having a son is very important. Mm-hmm. And they That's would usually- That's a fascinating observation right? because he only keep, has a daughter. He only has a daughter. He doesn't have a wife. I'm assuming he's got many concubines because they're going to make him out to be a savage, right? But I would imagine with multiple but concubines, he's not hypersexualized. He would have, she he, is exactly, and usually it's like a, he keeps trying thing. We just talked about this in some of the movies that we've been watching. We haven't gotten there yet, where he was like, "I know that the doctor said that we should stop having children, but I need a son." So I'm, you know what I that yeah. that mm-hmm. was very real for men of all cultures. They're like, "I'm the man." I want kids. That's what you're good for. So it was very new agey, I guess, for him to give her all this power, yet not in the right culture. Mm. Do you want to know how Boris Karloff felt about this film? Absolutely. I want to know how he felt. You're not going to love this answer. Did he like it? Was he okay with it? Did he consider it to be one of his best films? Quote, Karloff dismissed the criticisms of the film, stating that they were utterly ridiculous he felt that the film was an escapist adventure flick and shouldn't be taken too seriously is this an attitude i guess my question is is this an attitude at the time because he's just a rich british guy old british guy too he's an old guy where because his eyebrows are offensive he's also an old man though so i feel like a lot of that was his real eyebrows. <laughs> it was definitely not. Have you seen him in his older years? He is like caterpillars. Wisps. He is like a carpet on his face. He's got some serious eyebrows. No, that's true. Um, yeah, no, both of them. It looks like they were doing the drag thing and they just shaved their eyebrows and then painted yeah, real thin it. Yeah. eyebrows. Yeah. Fun story. Asian people have eyebrows. And they're not thin like that, unless you were intentionally doing that. And then all the clothes, some of which look like it was mostly made out of 
recycled materials. There was a lot of well, cheap, so you, shiny stuff. You get a lot of intermixing of cultures as well. There's a spread of Asian art. It's a smattering, if you will, of Asian art because there's the scene where they are walking through the doors and there's Those all these wood carvings. Indian. The doors at the back are Indian. The doors towards the front are more... I'm not sure I'd have to get a better look at them, but they're from varying parts of Asia. Asia is a continent, not a country. Thanks for the, the lesson, because <laughs> yeah. definitely some people forget, and some people uh-huh. forget that Africa is also, also a, continent. a continent and not a yeah, country. You know? You know what? Australia, also a continent. What? <laughs> not a country. <laughs> These are the continents, the continents. I mean... It would make sense if you were tying it into the storyline that he's a doctor, right? Dr. Fu Manchu has studied all over the world. And it would make sense if he was studying all over the world, collecting pieces from all over the world to come to his palace. That would make sense. I mean, I get, I think that's what they were trying, the vibe they were trying. What very I got beginning, was they were like, Asia. <laughs> well, no, that very beginning conversation between the two white guys. Um, they're both, it's a bunch of British people. And I wanted to talk about this a little bit. At this particular time, Britain was doing their damnedest to take cultural artifacts from other places Mm -hmm. and put them in the British Museum. And that's literally what they say. That's the start of this movie. Mm -hmm. We need to beat this guy who also collects shit Mm -hmm. to this Genghis Khan jazz because we want to put it in the British Museum. Right. Currently, the British Museum has over 2,000 artifacts that other countries are requesting back and Mm -hmm. they are refusing the request flat out refusal including some greek sculptures from the parthenon there's so many allowed to resist the request so is that what the un is for can't the un step in another (laughs) shout out to john oliver john oliver i i want to say last season Mm -hmm. i don't think it was this season i think it was last season he covered the British Museum and the atrocities that the British Museum has done in the name of artifact preservation. And they have caused a lot of damage and perpetuate a lot of cultural turmoil within some of these lands because so-and-so says that they have rights to this stuff. So-and-so says they have rights to this stuff, but the British people own it and they won't even give it back to their it's a whole big thing, but because the British have been collecting things for thousands of years, they've been taking over societies forever. They're just, I guess they're just allowed to do it. The big one is the Greek statues because Greece wants these statues back. Right. It's made national news and international news a few times. They want these statues back. And the British Museum loaned, loaned them the statues back but then ask for them to be returned. But they're not yours. But they're not yours. This Which... this whole movie, that was like a tangent, but it also, that's the whole basis of this movie, is a bunch of old white British guys going to steal cultural artifacts from a different culture, mm-hmm. specifically the Genghis Khan mm-hmm. Asian significance. So I it's think... just interesting. So that is in turn i believe the point of an art museum that is regionally specific when you have an art museum whether it be in new york or los angeles there should be museums that are based like the creme de la creme of that country's art 
And then there are more localized museums so that you're able to get more of an education about the art in that area. And it's broken down bit by bit. I just got back from Seattle. We went to Vancouver, Canada. We went to the art museum. My family was like, they're like, you're the art one. We can ask you all the questions. And I was like, I can answer questions about the art, about the fundamentals and foundations of art, but I cannot answer much about the artists themselves because I wasn't as educated on Canadian artists. But they had a plethora of information on Canadian artists and how it overlapped with politics. And there's a lot more political art going on up in Canada. Do you want to know what the British Museum statement is as to why they feel like they need to be in charge of these artifacts over other people? We were there first. We stole it first. Oh man, It's worse than that. <laughs> they don't believe that these native people oh, can take care can of it, take care of their own shit. And that the British need to be in charge of it. Okay, here's a fun, fun fact for everyone. Why is everyone so surprised that England is so racist? They're super racist, man. Everyone's like, oh my God, did you know that the monarchy didn't let black people in? Yeah, black people knew that because we've been seeing it for ages. All of a sudden you get one brown person in there who's not the brownest, but like it's not Wesley Snipes, you know what I mean? And oh no, he could have never. Harry oh, could have never God dated no. God a sister no. God because no. Megan isn't. I don't consider her like she's just a light. She's just a light, and she did people who hide their cultural. Like her parents are mixed, and she went out of her way to be on the wider end of the spectrum. Intentionally, because no one will hire you. Mm-hmm. She was of the root and of the same era that. We are where she's not that great of an actress. I liked suits and yeah, her tits aren't that great, but they didn't let her rock her natural hair on that show. They had her straightening her hair, doing straight perms because she was a lawyer because she was a lawyer. Only recently have we been able to rock this natural hair vibe. Shout out to Michelle Obama, who is living her real true final Pokemon self right now. (laughs) You know how we're always talking about how people are constantly evolving into their final Pokemon form. Whatever form that Michelle Obama is in right now is the form that I absolutely love. With the braids and the beautiful bright loud bold outfits and her ellen pants and shoes i just feel like she's always wanted she's always had this like this is a fucking tangent but (laughs) she's always had this big voice and she's this big bold bright person and she always had obama was gonna marry somebody who wasn't no for sure but i mean a lot of times people dress towards their personality if you're a morose person you're probably going to have a lot of dark clothes in your closet when you're in politics or an actor you gotta be neutral you because they want to dress you for sure to either neutral or to whatever they're marketing that was my point dude she was being dressed for the white people yeah they were like it's already too much to have brown people in the white house so we we have to to make you as white as possible the moment they got out she was like freedom it was Freedom 90 for Michelle Obama. I can wear my hair in braids again. The rain fell and then her <laughs> hair, all the all the kinks in her natural hair started coming out because it wasn't straightened anymore. <laughs> I love it, though. I love Michelle Obama so much. Let's bring her back to the White House. She doesn't have to really have a job. Let's just have her be there. Speaking, be like of, bringing, speaking of bringing black people, uh, what was the deal with all the black slaves in Beijing? Oh, my gosh. I know that just talking about cultures that are notoriously racist to black people specifically yeah middle eastern people are surprisingly racist to black people and that always was strange for me but i didn't 
ever associate racism towards black people with Chinese descent. I never really have seen Think that. about Don't Be a Menace, that whole scene where in the Korean bodega. Oh, I guess. Well, I guess that's true. There's that whole trope. And that's yeah, the whole thing Yeah, but I didn't think they had slaves. Uh, Do you know what? That's, yeah, that's the point yeah, I was I making. Was I didn't think that... Well, that's an, Chinese that is, culture dude, that is an, had any African slaves. That is an interesting subject altogether that we could go on about on a separate thing of slavery and other cultures. For sure. Especially within the slave trade. Trading human beings, that shit still happens. Surprise, surprise. Sorry to break it to you. The human slave trade is still happening. It's uh, in children. It's moved to different sectors. We got the private sector with prisons and we got... The private sector with children. Well, it could be children and up to adults. It could be anything. Yeah, I like, watched Taken. Taken, girl, SVU. SVU. Shout out to Ice-T. Ice-T. We are just trying to channel Ice-T to come on this show. We love Ice-T on this show. Anyway, I guess it makes more sense within the context of him being a collector of items. Do you know what I mean? He, if he was collecting items, it would make sense that this diabolical villain would also collect people. But it just, there was a missing piece in there. It was just kind of like, did you just throw some black people in for fun? Did you need some extras? And they were like, you know what? People had slaves back then. You guys are holding boom mics and stuff like that. Why we should just... watch some of the other Fu Manchu movies because Fu Manchu <gasps> was a serial and there are a ton of Fu Manchu. I would love to just like There's some com- more of Oh that. yeah, Christopher Lee played that's Fu Manchu. That's right, Christopher Lee took it. That's we looked at this the other movies. day. Christopher Lee's Did jam. he say anything about it? Mm, not that I could find. I wasn't really focusing Looking for on his. Christopher Lee. Because I'm just wondering if as a person who had to carry on the racist but tradition. Again, it's, con- it's context, man. At the time, these cereals. They, they sold. They yeah. were popular. Well, to your point, like you said, it was reissued. Probably in 72. Around, the, around and... the time when Christopher Lee was like, hey, I'm Dracula and Fu Manchu. And I think he was just following after his Boris Karloff footsteps. Who knew that he and Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi all had so much in common. Right. Just... You mentioned that, so this was meant to be a science fiction horror. Yeah, it was like, like that's the the pop sci fi that was kind of building momentum at the time. Before we get into the fifties, like there was stuff that led up to that to gain its popularity. There were some precursors to War of the Worlds, honestly, um, a thing from another planet, the movie that the thing is based on. Mm-hmm. That's more science fiction than it is horror. When Carpenter got his hands on it, it turned into a beautiful horror movie with some science fiction elements. But the original movie is a science fiction movie. But see, this one is one where, like we've talked about, science fiction is one that takes race out of the equation where every human can participate in the story. That but is a post-world, like, uh, that is a more modern concept. I gotcha. Like the old dime store novels from the 50s and 60s but that was what was otherworldly back then other cultures were otherworldly other continents were otherworldly they were the aliens so you see a change within science fiction where the alien is always the common thing this otherness this strangeness but you take it from a race perspective you end up getting science fiction being the most racially accepting and modern 
forward facing medium to it being about other planets instead mm-hmm. of other continents. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Hmm. Hmm. So many questions to ponder. I have a lot of questions for this next one. The next movie? Are you ready to get into it? Uh, Am I ready? No. Should we just go for it? Definitely. Yes. (laughs) Oh, God. Okay. Short circuit. Nova Laboratory robotics experts Newton Crosby and Ben... Jab it. What? <laughs> I was waiting for you to say his last name because I wanted to see how you pronounced it. Because honestly, I feel like everybody in this movie pronounced it differently. I don't think anybody. I didn't even get that he had a last name. No, they said his last name a few times. They did. They probably just smashed uh-huh, it together. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was a how, 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 how situation. The Goots couldn't handle that name. He did no, not. He gooted his way through it. Jabatuya? Oh, like Jabatuya. No, no. no. <laughs> It's J-A-B-I-T-U-Y-A. I remember it being like Jabrita or something. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think they said. They just called him Ben most they of the movie. They called him Ben a lot. Well, I remember his name was Ben. Like Ben. Ben was longer. But then they just called him Ben for short. Yeah. That's what I remember. The last name. Maybe I thought his. That's what it was. I thought it was Ben Jabbit Tuya. And then, like, yeah, that was Ben Jabbit. And then they just shortened it down to Ben. Oh, no, it's the first and last name. His they name said his ben first Jabba and last Tuya. name a number of times. See, they said them so close together. I thought they were saying Ben Jabbit was his, like, well, okay. Well, that makes us more racist than I initially thought that it was. So, Ben Jabatuya have developed several. Not how you it. <laughs> okay, it's fine. We're moving on. How do you say it? I hold on. Let me look at this again. <laughs> it's like giving me like suck it to me, suck it to me, suck it to me, suck it to me. Jabitua? I don't remember. I don't know, man. I'm trying. I'm trying to make it not sound as racist. No, obviously. Okay, I cannot wait. Jabituya. We are gonna Jobby. talk. We're gonna talk about Ben. In great lengths. Ben J. All right. Ben J. (laughs) They've developed several prototype robots called Saints or S-A-I-N-T. Strategic Artificially Intelligent Nuclear Transport for the U.S. military to use in Cold War operations. Though they would rather seek peaceful applications of the robots, after a live demonstration for the military, one of the units, SAINT number 5, is struck by lightning, arcing through the lab's power grid. This scrambles its programming and makes it sentient, resulting in its escape from the Nova facility. Number 5 alive! Number 5 no robot, no machine. Number 5 alive. This movie could have been good. I don't remember this movie being racist because I liked this movie when I was a child. And so you were focused on the robot, not the horrendous racism and sexism going on in the background behind the cute robot. But that's the point. That's why we're talking about it. The robot finds itself in Astoria, Oregon, and is found by Stephanie Speck, otherwise known as Allie Sheedy. We love Ali Sheedy. I do love Ali Sheedy. We just saw her. She has a lot less club. A lot less dandruff in this movie. A lot less. She got she I got know. some sell some blue. 
<laughs> she moved to Oregon. There's more humid. You know what it is? There's more humidity maybe than in the Chicago Chicago outskirts high school that she was going mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. So she got the hair care and the environment that she needed. And became a weird cat lady, raccoon lady. Yeah, that tracks. This, this, this fucking is, tracks. This is like the extension of what happened after she graduated. She's like, I'm ignored. I ate people. So then she went to Oregon, the Oregon coast, and got a bunch of animals. And now she is taking care of this robot that she found. Stephanie Speck is an animal caregiver who mistakes him for an alien. He also breaks into her truck, so she mistakes him for a robber and someone who's trying to steal her livelihood. Okay, but he's made out of metal. I wouldn't automatically assume an alien. That's just me, though. Whatever. People were dumb (laughs) in the 80s. She takes the robot into her home where she provides him with input in the form of visual and verbal stimuli, allowing the robot to improve its language skills. I like your number five. Thanks. Stephanie continues to help the curious number five robot <laughs> curious number five robot learn about the world. She eventually discovers that number five was built by Nova and contacts them about the lost robot. Nova's CEO, Dr. Howard Marner, who we also know as the professor from Skidoo. Yeah, I told you when we watched Skidoo, he was he immediately turned old after that movie yeah it was just like an old scientist slash sexually weird guy because he's the boss in home for the holidays which we watched last thanksgiving the yeah. one that she's holly hunter's having an affair with the old boss well you know prison does that to someone <laughs> it makes you look older <laughs> it takes years off your life some say <laughs> especially when you're in a cell with all the dudes he was in a fucking cell oh, with god, right trying to guide jackie gleason through his acid trip yeah that'll that, take some that, time off of you that's gonna age you a little bit <laughs> just, just a bit just a bit and get a few lines in that one. Oh my god <laughs> i think if they had lines we would have been in a whole other movie i meant like facial lines <laughs> not cocaine lines but <laughs> Nova's CEO, Dr. Howard Marner, orders Crosby and Ben to recover him so they can disassemble and rebuild him. While waiting for Nova to arrive, Number 5 learns about death when he accidentally crushes a grasshopper and concludes that if Nova disassembles him, disassemble, he will die. And he escapes in Stephanie's food truck. However, Nova uses a tracking device on Number 5 to corner him and deactivates the robot for return to the facility. During transport, number five reactivates himself, removes the tracking device, and flees back to Stephanie. Stephanie! I was like, Stephanie! Because of these unusual actions, Crosby tries to convince Howard that something has changed with number five's programming and that they should take care not to damage it in their recovery efforts so that he can examine them later. Howard instead sends their security chief, Captain Schroeder. Schroeder. Oh, it says K. Oh. Well, that's a stupid name. Scroder. It sounds, sounds like, like Scrotum. Scrotum. <laughs> <laughs> well, Captain Scrotum and three other SAMT <laughs> prototypes to capture number five by force. Ignoring Crosby's concerns, number five outwits the other robots and reprograms their personalities to act like the Three Stooges, allowing him to escape. Number five kidnaps Crosby, takes him to Stephanie, and convinces Crosby of his sentience sidebar please do (laughs) he takes fucking gutenberg to stephanie and he's got a task but these scientists their main objective is getting laid okay uh, that's what i was about to bring up this description has not 
sprinkled in the Ben popping in with the oh ho- you're a woman you can't horny, do anything the horny Indian you. scientist that yeah. is apparently mm-hmm. a trope that they're trying to create that is not flying and, and Fisher Stevens doesn't take it off really offensive accent Ugh. we're gonna get to the I end know. on that we're, I know we're I'm so trying sorry. to get to the end but I'm it's so hard sorry. because I had to mention the like overt over sexualization that these guys are having they're like yeah, yeah we're scientists and we created this big amazing robot also pussy you're like, maybe you should have invented a robo pussy. You seem to be smart. Maybe you can do that for yourself. Uh, regardless, let's get through the end of this thing. <laughs> he takes her to Stephanie and convinces Crosby of his sentience. They find that Scroder has called in the United States Army to capture number five and on his orders, restrain Crosby and Stephanie so he can open fire. That's a bit aggressive, but I guess it's supposed to be a nuclear robot. To protect his friends, number five leads the army away and appears to be destroyed by a helicopter missile, which is even with all the racism. I love this, though. It makes me feel sad. And I was like, I feel get, like I, I didn't think I could feel another emotion. Part, though, I, know. I love it. I couldn't think I could feel another emotion. Stephanie is devastated and Scroder's men scrounge the remains of number five as trophies, prompting Crosby to resign from Nova and drive away with Stephanie and Nova in the van. He's like, I may have lost a job, but I hopefully just gained a lifetime of pussy. <laughs> Howard is dismayed over the loss of his research and dismisses Scroder for his insubordination. <laughs> it's going to be really hard for me to not Scrotum. Into Scrotonation. <laughs> Crosby and Stephanie are surprised to discover that number five had hidden under the van, having assembled a decoy of himself from spare parts to mislead the military. Crosby suggests taking number, number five, five decoy. Number five disassemble. Number five reassemble. Crosby suggests taking number five to a secluded ranch in Montana. Also, bitch, we just met. I'm not going to a secluded ranch with you. I don't know you. I don't know you, Goots. Um, okay, but she's about to be like, oh, you can take me away from all my problems. That's true. She <laughs> did have some bills. She did have some animals. bills to pay. An angry ex who kept coming around that house, and a lot of animals who had he medical bills. Definitely swooped in and saved her ass. They trapped each other. This is what that was. Sure. They trapped each other. Okay, where <laughs> where they will be able to put much input for the robot, and Stephanie agrees to come with them, as she can. Again, sign away Come on all with her, them. She could sign away on all her problems. <laughs> As they drive off, number five asserts that his name should now be Johnny Five, based on El DeBarge's song, Who's Johnny? Which has been playing on the band's radio the entire time. Mm-hmm. Unbeknownst to everybody. You can't El hear DeBarge, it. You know exactly who that is. You can't hear it over the racism. It's <laughs> the sub sub soundtrack to this whole thing. So why should we give a shit about short circuit? Okay. Well <laughs> Man, there's so many reasons. Um, but uh Fisher Stevens extremely awful depiction of an Indian person and his sexist attitude towards Ali Sheedy is a good reason <laughs> to Ali Sheedy and all women. He was remember the beginning. Yeah. He was like yeah. Scootenberg was like I was on a date one time, and I was like this whole scene could be cut out of the movie. This whole scene about Gutenberg's date, how he's we all know you're not a loser. <laughs> okay, so I want to say that there was another movie that came out right around this time that's equally as problematic. Oh, it's not Man of the House, but basically Thomas C. Howell is put long into, circuit board. <laughs> uh, he's put into blackface. 
so uh. he can get into college because he can get into college as a minority. Oh my god, how did we not watch this fucking movie? It was honestly on my list, but I was like, there's <laughs> we can't do it all from the racism from the uh. 80s. It was uh. Fu, Fu Manchu could have also been this movie. Hold on, dude, you're breaking my brain right now. See Thomas Howell, uh-huh. like the outsiders. Uh-huh. This podcast has been a one way trip Soul to Man. My- that's what it's called. It's oh, Soul Man. Oh my god! It's called Soul Man. And it, yeah, so it, for some this reason in the eighties, been a one way trip to my sexual confusion. Okay, because <laughs> Thomas Howell was like super cute, and I was like all about his. He's living his best music see- lifestyle right now, but I didn't know that he. There's so many young black. Uh. It was just I. But my point was the eighties was this weird time where it was somehow they went the other way with it. it I want. I don't want to say it's acceptable because I don't. Soul Man got backlash in '86 when it came out. I fucking hope so, um, dude. I fucking hope so. Um, I just feel uh. like studios thought that it was more acceptable. There's a picture of him in blackface. You can't see my jaw dropping. But I know. It's oh really my upsetting. god! It's really bad. The the Jerry Curl wig yeah. that they gave him. Yeah. Okay, I will say this. The makeup job on that is fucking terrible. It's bad. But the makeup job they did on Fisher Stevens was surprisingly good. Let's get into Fisher Stevens because he's honestly the inspiration in this movie is one of the inspirations for this particular episode. When people ask us, what made you guys want to make this season happen? We say Carol Channing and Fisher Stevens. Stevens, And people get really confused. Here's Fisher. Fisher What does he have to say? He has some things to say. So when he was originally hired to play Ben, the character was not originally intended to be Middle Eastern. He, he was wasn't supposed to be Caucasian. Correct. He was fired for some reason and replaced with Bronson Pinchot, which if you didn't watch Perfect Strangers, which is what he left this project to go do, that was kind of his okay. Kickstarter to frame, you would remember him as... Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah, I was like... He's, he's one... the art dealer assistant. And he has... Where he was like, he was like, get the fuck out of here. No, I cannot get the fuck out of here. I cannot. I work here. <laughs> I will also say he's in one of my most favorite Stephen King TV movies, The Langoliers. Oh. He's really good in that one. He's done some interesting projects. But he left this to go do Perfect Strangers, which kicked off his career. I think and he made the right fucking I do choice, too. man. Stevens was rehired. Kudos, Bronze and Pinchot. Your alarm bells were going up. So when he was rehired, he was asked that, they, hey, fun story. There's been some changes <laughs> oh, to the character. We're going to need you to grow your hair out and dye it and grow a beard. And we're going to give you these contacts to wear. And here's this really dark makeup because now you're Indian. And he was a little confused, but he did it because it was a paycheck. He also said that they told him to walk hunched over like a cricket plater, quote, end quote, because that was supposed to give some sort of Indian gait. Definitely not a lesser, more submissive gait to all the white people around him. Definitely not that. So in 2015... A cricket gate. That's so. Isn't that a bizarre, bizarre, specific, very, very specific? Yeah, no, cricket is like Britain's version of baseball, mm. and it took off in India. Like Indians love cricket. Bizarre. So I guess that was. But if you don't know that, and this is a movie that is introducing Indian cultures to a bunch of people who don't really know anything about that, he looks like a hunched over subservient. Mm. Mm, yeah like lesser than yeah. scientist yeah he has it's a so more bizarre but really interesting 
that that's the note. That's the note they gave him. So what he has to say in 2015, he was on Aziz Ansari's podcast and yeah. they had a very cordial discussion about this movie. Mm-hmm. And Aziz feels that Stevens isn't a bad guy. He was playing Ben as authentically as he could mm-hmm. within the given circumstances. And he wasn't he like was fucking Boris Karloff. He was he, like, get over it. It's just interesting that someone of an Indian background doesn't feel as offended of his portrayal, probably because there wasn't that many to go off of. Everyone on that podcast agreed that if this movie was remade today, it would it be would not get made. with, well, no, this movie wouldn't get remade <laughs> regardless, but it, the character would be played by someone. Aziz Ansari. No, <laughs> or Kumail. Like. Kumail Nanjiani. Maybe Kumail, but I feel like for the comedic, they're both comedians. But for the vibe they were going for, I feel like Probably Aziz, Aziz, Aziz would have been it. I, it's just, uh, yeah, that's well, sure, that's fascinating. Interesting you bring that up. Fascinating, so, fascinating stuff. Because he's talked about this before, obviously not just with Aziz Ansari, but I find it interesting, and I'm glad that he went on that show to address it. That's showing somebody because that's Fisher trying Stevens to talk is about Jewish. It. Yeah. So he understands being persecuted by people. (laughs) Um, According to Fisher Stevens, like we just talked about, the character was originally intended to be Caucasian. It was rewritten to be more of a comedic ethnic part. So I'm going to stop right there because the fact that adding an ethnicity to your movie will add an element of comedy is offensive in itself. This movie doesn't have enough spice in it. Let's add a funny black guy. Richard Pryor, where you at? Okay, well, I was just going to say another movie that was almost a part of this episode was The Toy with Richard Pryor, mm-hmm. which is an extremely offensive movie. Mm-hmm. I saw that movie. I haven't movie. seen that one. Seriously? No. The premise of that movie is Richard Pryor is a Can man down do on his luck. The and Toy and the other one that we mentioned? Yeah, absolutely. That I... We can do a bonus episode with right? <laughs> Soul Man and the Toy, other yes, racist movies dude, from the 80s. Okay, I'm writing that shit down right now. So uh, the Toy, Richard Pryor's down on his luck. He needs a job. He needs some money. And I can't, for the life of me, remember who the old rich white guy is. It Maybe it's Zero Mastel or something. It's someone famous and awesome and i'm going to kick myself when i remember who it is but he essentially buys richard Pryor and gives him to his son as a gift so he can so the toy is richard Pryor. yeah yeah and it's like a buddy Ooh. comedy between this tiny white kid and Richard Pryor. <laughs> Richard Pryor's like, I'm over here doing some crack. Do you want to do some crack? Can you say crack pipe with me, boys and girls? Does crack start with a C or a K? <laughs> what do we know about crack? Don't use alcoholic hair products. Today, we're going to learn about freebasing. <laughs> oh, my God. Can you say freebasing? Oh Lord! Oh my Lord! <laughs> Gotta make sure to turn the flame off when you're done. Oh so that was that was the note to him when they brought Fisher Stevens back. Was can you play it with a more comedic ethnic take? And when that deal with Bronson fell through, and he was asked if he could come back, he asked if he could make his accent more ethnic to make Ben's scripted lines funnier. So what you're telling me is they had a bad script and they thought a a wacky ethnic accent would make it funny? Yes. Cool. Yes. Bad writing. Awesome. And then 
Furthermore, Fisher Stevens spent five weeks living in India to prepare for the role. What? He should have done better. Now, I will say for posterity's sake, Chloe and I watched the second one. We did. And somehow, magically... It was better than the first one it was a better movie than the first one and his performance was more authentic and it was more, more authentic and but I, it was still a terrible movie but i feel somehow like got better o- than the first one i don't know if we got over the initial shock from the first one so it was easier to to palette there was a lot less sexism in the second he, one true maybe that there was, was our also big a thing. lot less gutenberg in the second one yeah that's true it was literally ben in number five on an and adventure our favorite part of the whole movie ali sheedy literally phoning it in <laughs> a 30 <laughs> second read, voiceover read thing the letter that she writes to send number five from montana it's the but, funniest shit but that was my whole thing too five weeks okay in five weeks you could be an authentic indian man <laughs> is that is that your video series? Five, five weeks to be an authentic Indian man. Yes, from Fisher to Ben in five weeks. That would hooked be... on phonics. Oh my god! But like five weeks in India, and I guess like he was still trying to do his authentic actor thing and bring the truth in it because he convinced many Indians that he was in fact an Indian man. His yeah, mannerisms for... were convincing enough that. They thought he was, and not just any Indian man. This was actually a really interesting controversy that came about. There was major confusion that occurred in India among fans when this was released because many people who saw the film thought that Fisher Stevens was actually Bollywood actor Javed Jafari. <laughs> okay. This was due to the fact that Javed is like this spitting image of Fisher Stevens including everything with his beard and the round eyeglasses, which, okay, a beard and round eyeglasses is all it takes. I think it's just that they look similar face-to-face because he has kind of a round face, and as he's aged, it has not not done him favors. Let's just say that. Um, But Javed had his first release, Mary Jung, in 1985, and this movie came out in 1986, so he was just hitting his big peak rise in fame in India. Then this movie came out, and they thought, oh my God, he's broken out of Bollywood and made it into Hollywood fame. So Javed later had to confirm in interviews that this was in fact another actor. So people, not only were they offended that it was a man in brown face but they legitimately thought it was one of their own and that one of their own had broken into the hollywood specter and was like playing with the goots and ali sheedy and it wasn't that so it's like a double layer of disappointment there's a lot of racism in 86 because both this movie and soul man came out in 86 but it was it convinced other Indians that he was an Indian That's man amazing. too. So it was it fooled everybody. It's that and five then weeks in India. It just, <laughs> well, I think that just makes him a very good study that speaks to Fisher Stevens' ability to authentically portray a character, I guess. Yeah. But he's still reading a script and they were still trying to use a certain spice to quote spice up a script that was bad. Just the idea that, can you, can you read it more ethnic to make those scripted lines funnier? That's what this will be. That's what funny is. Funny is ethnicity. Funny is culture. So if you are... You can't put curry on it and make it funny. <clears throat> oh my God, bitch. <laughs> I was waiting for a moment. I so knew, in case I knew you I was fucking... going through your brain. I could see it going through. In case through. you want to cut that out. But, oh, that is so good. But like, that's the idea. And... I, 
think I want you to hold on to that idea. Hold on to that idea that the concept of funny is other cultures. The concept of funny, what makes something funnier, is adding something that is different than your own view and perspective. That's not what funny is. That's not what comedy is. Comedy, I'm going to tell you right now, fun secret. Comedy is tragedy. Yeah. Comedy is finding the bad things that happen to all of us and making something good out of it. So this tragic piece of film has definitely given many, many, many Indian comedians a platform to stand on and something to talk about that's relatable. Mm -hmm. So that is taking funny comedy out of the tragedy, out of that. But yeah, hold on to that concept because I want to bring it up for another topic when we talk about I feel this like next the, tragedy. The <laughs> only thing, the only good thing that really came out of this movie was number five and how he probably most definitely influenced Wally. This is total oh, conjecture, but number you five and Wally said, were... <laughs> you point blank, you're like, I would much rather watch Wally with less racism. Yeah. But more more fetching. Um, just quick, fun little robot note. The robots were the most expensive part of this movie. This movie was, quote... You mean Fisher Stevens' makeup <laughs> wasn't, like, a quarter of the budget? <laughs> <laughs> um, they had multiple different robot models for different sequences. Mm -hmm. Most of this film, quote, was relatively inexpensive, allowing them to allocate as much money as they needed for the robot character. Okay. Relatively inexpensive. I know, right? The Goots was not inexpensive in 80s, <laughs> man. He was, he was at peak Gooper. He really was. This was pre Three Men and a Baby. This was uh, yes. the police academy days. So he was getting the money. Even though he was like a sexist asshole, I still wanted to hit it a little bit. I'm glad you wanted to. I was never into the goots. Anyway, number five was in this specific moment, not oh. any like like oh. him in '86. Oh, he was okay. hot in '86. Okay. Like right there, right there. Not so now. God, the no. only really last little cool thing that uh, number five was designed by Sid Mead, the visual futurist famous for Blade Runner and Tron. I'm glad you brought that up because. There are realms where industrial design, product design, and film overlap, and this is one of them within the realm of production design. Sid Mead is talked about because his – I need to show you a book of Sid Mead's sketches because they're gorgeous. And they're all very – a lot of automotive design, a lot of character work, things that make up sci-fi, right? Spaceships fast cars, hover cars, that sort of thing. But it was his style and how he broke things down because what people don't understand is it's not just a drawing. When it comes to character design and, and production design for movies, you essentially have to make this thing as close to a working thing as possible without it being a working thing. So they're trying to make this million-dollar government robot that actually works without having a budget million dollars from the government. Mm-hmm. This will not be the last we talk about Sid Mead. I definitely, I would love to do an entire episode on Sid Mead because he's influenced. It's a great way to showcase another side of filmmaking, the side of filmmaking that I get excited about, that I've been introduced to, and to see how the different jobs, all the different jobs, so many different jobs that go into making a movie create the images of what we see. But I did not know... Short Circuit was a part of his repertoire because you see, you right? list off like Blade Runner and you're like, Tron, Tron, Short Circuit. And you're like, 
Okay. Okay. Get it. All right. All right. It was a paycheck, man. Sometimes I think we just need it's impressive though. Be it's like a, it's puppetry. These people are getting work. <laughs> it's puppetry. They had a dude that did the voiceover oh, yeah. for number five, and then Johnny Five himself. We can call him Johnny Five. That's what he wants you to anymore. call him. <laughs> Johnny Five. Right. He has three interchangeable heads that were all radio controlled. So that his facial expressions could be properly articulated. They did the. We talked about the. That was a. That was a big puppeteering thing. Mm-hmm. We talked about the exact same tricks when we talked about gremlins last year. Exactly for Christmas. That was a very popular technique back in the day. Except it sounded like this crew was a lot less violently motivated by the gremlins. <laughs> like the that, gremlins that, crew. Remember that fact that I had. That we had yeah. like a whole short list they of all the ways it. they wanted to torture yeah. <laughs> the cutest one, who apparently was the most difficult one. Uh, it's always the cute ones. You were saying it was like this was a manageable budget. One point four million dollars of the film's fifteen million dollar budget was spent on the creation of Number Five. And that okay, so let's listen to that sentence again. Was spent on the creation, so it took one point four million dollars for development. And then there's another chunk of money they're not mentioning that's yeah. going into because there was more than one Number Five. Yeah, that's what I said. They had a bunch of them. Yeah, a bunch. But each one of them weighed approximately 250 pounds or 113.4 kilograms. That thing looks like it had weight. That thing looks like it was a real hefty object. It's the 80s. Are you kidding me? Look back to any technology that came out of the 80s and put it on a scale. No, for sure. (laughs) You'll tip over. I remember our first TV. (laughs) Yeah, man. Dude TVs. 30 dudes. Get it out of the house. Do you remember when you first saw like a flat screen TV? You were like, where's the back of it? Oh, yeah. My first thing was, oh, what are we going to do with our entertainment center? Right. Because remember, we had the entertainment, the the entertainment center. And it was like a big cabinet for your TV. All the furniture that was developed around this technological thing. And once technology started taking off and taking on various shapes, the furniture just couldn't keep up and just needed to get more minimalist. Thank God that furniture was awful. Well, I think we went through a phase where we did have the big entertainment center and then we got it was a big screen but it was still a projector mm. tv so it had like a flat front but the back was back was big yeah i remember and that big but because it was a big one it had to be its own standalone so they were trying to make standalone entertainment tv things because it had to be on the ground yeah there was just no way man back in the day back in the day the fact that just that question alone, what happened to the back of it? No one's going to understand what we're talking about. Something as simple as the back. You mean the, yeah, the whole back section of the, the TV. The rest of the TV the where the TV works. The rest of the works. TV. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the thing that makes it the go. The and the cables and the. <laughs> the thing that makes it go. You know what else I want to go? This next movie? Yes. Because. Okay. We're going to have a confession right now. <laughs> Both Chloe and I had never seen this movie because it's giving you confession music. Thank you. We dislike Tom Cruise so much, and we were just so offended by the whole like this movie when it came out in two thousand three. I've avoided it like the plague. I can say this because he stopped following me on social media. But there's a person who I considered dating for a second who said this was his favorite movie, and then I promptly rescinded my thoughts. About dating this person. Yeah, you should not date someone who thinks this is their favorite movie. Oh, he told me afterwards, and then oh. I was like, nope. 
I'm going to lay down and watch this movie and think about you. And I was like, those are Gross. two things you should not do. The Last Samurai. You know what two things have nothing in common? Me and The Last Samurai, with the exception of the fact that we're talking about it right, right now. now. <laughs> Picture it. No. <laughs> 1876, former U.S. Army <gasps> Captain Nathan Algren, a skilled soldier who has become a bitter alcoholic, traumatized by the atrocities he committed during the American Indian Wars. I'm just picturing Tom Cruise yelling a Wait, lot. We're going to get there. <laughs> ah, ah, Tom Cruise. He's approached by his former commanding officer, Colonel Bagley. Ba uh, Bagley is Tony Goldwyn. Bagley asks him to train the newly created Imperial Japanese Army for a Japanese businessman named Omura, who intends to use the army to suppress a samurai-headed rebellion against Japan's new emperor. Okay, pause. How did they get here? How did he go from fighting Native Americans to them being like, we want to send you to Japan now. Is all the dude. It was all that colonel, all his I friend. know, it just doesn't make sense. I don't know how his friend got involved with the Japanese. That's the question I have. And they're still how'd wearing... How'd you guys get... Right, they're still wearing like their government like it uniforms. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense. There's no... Ergo, letting you know that you don't even need to go fucking on this journey to begin with. Okay, sorry. I just... I thought maybe you had an answer. I don't. There's no <laughs> answers for this fucking movie. Despite his hatred of Bagley, which he does hate Bagley, he tells him to his face, I would murder you in a heartbeat. He does tell him that. The impoverished Algren takes the job for money, mostly booze money. He doesn't really care that he's homeless anymore. <laughs> yeah. He just wants to keep the booze going. And then someone said, you know, they have sake in Japan. And he was like, what? Yeah. Booze? I'm there. <laughs> it's a different kind of drunk. I'm there. He's accompanied to Japan by his old friend, Sergeant Ziblon Gant. Known as Billy Connolly. Billy fucking Connolly. Which also is like, why He's are you the there? Why are you there? Okay. You're from Ireland. Okay, sidebar. Billy Connolly is the Irish Sean Bean. Because every time I see Billy Connolly in a He's movie. He's always dying. He dies. He's amazing. I am so happy that he's there. He's so funny. And then they murder him. And then I have another 90 minutes of whatever stupid fucking movie I'm watching with I no Billy Connolly in it. I more Billy Connolly in it than we got. I know. Okay. Fun fact. Sidebar. Billy Connolly, Sean Bean. They're in a movie together. And none of them die. <laughs> Neither one of them die. Who, who dies, dies first. first. I like that. Yeah. I like that yeah. a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Upon arriving, Algren meets Simon Graham, a British translator, knowledgeable about the samurai. That guy is played by, oh God, what's his real name? He's Peter Pettigrew. These are plays. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't have a real name they've anymore. Got, they've got like, they've casted so well in terms of like Benedict Arnold's. Like we're, they're, mm. they're like, we're looking for Benedict Arnold types. Tony Goldwyn, Peter Pettigrew, you are our people. Yeah, for sure. Algren learns that the Imperial soldiers are simply conscripted peasants with shoddy training and little discipline this is the first time they've seen a fucking gun dude Correct. it's not that they're shoddy at it it's just that this is their first time seeing mm -hmm. a boomstick mm -hmm. <laughs> like... while training them to shoot algren is informed that the samurai are attacking one of amuro's railroads amuro sends the army there despite algren's protests that they are not ready which they are not <laughs> you keep sounding like you're saying al green 
<laughs> okay, but the, it's written. It's Algren. I know, but it just like in my head, Al- I want to say Algren. I know. It just like it just sounds like you're like despite Al Green's protest, <laughs> <laughs> he protested with love, baby. Dude, Al Green could have made this movie maybe a little better. I don't know. He'd make it smoother. That's for fucking. He would true. sing you through your pain. That is what's <laughs> You don't need to step a coup, baby. <laughs> No Seba Koo, just Seba Woo, baby. (laughs) The battle is a disaster as the undisciplined conscripts are routed and Gant is killed. Algren fights to the last before he is surrounded, expecting to die. He is taken prisoner when the samurai leader, Katsumoto, decides to spare him. Why? Why spare him? Because he fights. He can no, fight like a motherfucker. No, I know. Like he's fighting like a motherfucker. But I'm just like, end this movie now. <laughs> Here's a fun story. Sidebar. I would never, ever really genuinely believe that Tom Cruise could fight like six a samurai <laughs> at once like a samurai. Of course not. You see them run short really fast. Legs. I guarantee you that fool can run. He could jump out he, of a plane. He runs a lot. He could shoot a gun. Flash around a sword, not so much. Six on one sword play, not really I viable. I believe Uma Thurman more than I believe Tom Cruise wielding a sword. She has a lot more arm reach. Facts. <laughs> Facts. General Hasegawa, a former samurai serving the Imperial Army, commits seppuku rather than being taken prisoner. Algren is taken to Katsumoto's village. <laughs> Father, father, <laughs> you don't have to create Sebaku no more. <laughs> Seba, Seba, Sebaku. Algren is taken to Katsumoto's village, and Katsumoto's request is taken by Taka, Katsumoto's sister, the widow of the samurai, killed by Algren. Hey, he killed your husband. He's going to stay here for a while. Have fun with that, sis. <laughs> you get to stare at the man who murdered the man you love every day. Every day. And you get and, to help him recover. And you get every to bring day. him back to health. Every Yay! day. <laughs> he might try to grab your booby a little bit because this is also pre-war times and he's a white man, but it's okay. We trust him. Right. He's poorly treated at first. He eventually gains the samurai's respect and grows close to Katsumoto. With the help of Taka, Algren overcomes his alcoholism and guilt. There's a scene where he's just like rocking in the corner screaming, Sake! Sake! <laughs> you almost see some cruise peen. Because <laughs> he's wrapped he's not up wearing in his any little pants, yeah. sumo diaper of recovery. <laughs> apparently, we, you need the montage of him going through withdrawals but, but the best part of the withdrawals though is her looking at him and going bye Ka-chunk. just closing the fucking sliding door be like this seems like something you need to do on your own <laughs> above my piggy <laughs> <laughs> seriously so in this whole fucking I'm i would be like you deserve it pr- scream louder bitch right. you murdered my husband so this whole prisoner of war montage, whatever scene, mm-hmm. he ends up learning Japanese. He starts appreciating their culture. They start training him in the art of Kenjitsu. He develops sympathy for the samurai as a people. 
who are upset that the peace of modern technology has eroded the traditions of their society. This is just like when Fisher Stevens spent five weeks in India. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> this, this is the journey. This that is he exactly took. it. <laughs> Al Green and Taka develop an unspoken affection for each other. Where Tom Green, Tom Green. <laughs> oh my God, that would be fucking awful. Can you imagine Tom Green being the last samurai? <laughs> that was a slip oh. up. Algren. Tom Cruise. Tucky, do you want some sausage? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> Tom Cruise just ogles her a lot. He's constantly like staring at her from dark hallways. Dude, I saw that coming from a mile away. I was like, some dude is hurt in battle. And there's some young, ample female taking care of him. He's sitting there staring up at her, trying to get a peek, trying to get a peek at that pie. As her kids keep poking him with a stick. Yeah, which is- while she's also trying to take care of her kids and you. And then you're like, don't you want to fall in love with me? And she's like, I'm not in love with you. I'm not in love with the fact that I've had to clean up your gauze tissue for the last whoever knows how many weeks while you've been going through withdrawal, shouting at the top of your lungs. And my children are fine with it. So honestly, at the end of that scene, he's like besties with the samurai. And he's like, they he gets to watch. He's not in chains anymore. He gets to watch the bug. It's just a little like montage, like right? a Zoolander, but <laughs> him becoming a samurai. <laughs> it goes bang, bang, bang. <laughs> he gets to watch the kabuki theater instead of being chained up in the back room. Cool. All right. Yeah, he's he's allowed out. <laughs> Actually, throughout this, it's not part of the description, but he get, they like give him a babysitter. They give him this old guy to just like follow him around, and he who like, he yells at for the beginning because he's like, "You're supposed to tell me what's going on," yeah, and he's just me, like, "Talk to me, no, tell me your name." Okay, I'm gonna name you Bob. Okay, that part is the worst, dude. He's like, "Okay, Bob, 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 Bob," and I was like, "I feel like Tom Cruise has definitely done this to someone oh, before. This feels like 100%. too real of a situation. Like, I feel like that scene." They just hit record. They didn't tell him that the cameras were rolling. Right. He was just like, what's your name? Okay, you're not going to talk to me? All right, your name is Bob now. Bob. Your name is Tobik. <laughs> That's <laughs> all this is. One night, a group of ninja infiltrate the village and attempt to assassinate Katsumoto. Algren saves Katsumoto's life and then helps defend the village, concluding that Omara must have hired the ninjas. One of us. One of us. <laughs> Katsumoto requests a meeting with Emperor Magi. In Tokyo, and he brings Algren, intending to release him. Upon arriving in Tokyo, Algren sees the Imperial Army has become a well-trained and fully equipped force led by Bagley. Katsumoto, to his dismay, discovers that the young and inexperienced Emperor has become a puppet of Omura. I'm getting like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom vibes, mm. the young Emperor, mm. that vibe. Mm. Mm-hmm. At a government meeting, Omura orders Katsumoto's arrest for carrying a sword in public and tells him to perform seppuku the next day to redeem his honor. There's a lot of seppuku in this movie. Everybody's disemboweling themselves. Redeeming to me always implies that you get to reap the benefits right afterwards. Not in Japanese culture. No, I mean, in that idea, you redeem it through death. Yeah, afterwards. That's why the entire movie... Ken Watanabe, Katsumoto, keeps talking about the perfect death. I must have the perfect death. But think about it. You're redeeming a coupon. You're redeeming redeeming your special gift. You get to enjoy the gift, but not this time. 
Meanwhile, Algren refuses Bagley's offer to resume command of the army, prompting Omaro to send his assassins after him. But Algren kills the assailants and then assists the samurai in freeing Katsumoto. During the rescue, Katsumoto's son, Nabuta, is mortally wounded. This is the young hot one. Do you remember? I was like, oh, he's the Orlando Bloom of the Asians in this movie. Our Asian Orlando Bloom gets mortally wounded. His sacrifice allowing the others to escape as he like very Hollywood just starts shooting a bunch of bows and arrows at this dude's just like pelting bullets at him. Why kill the hot guy? Because he's hot. You can't get that. Can't kill Tom Cruise. He can't be a martyr for the cause. I was like, you gotta have (laughs) Tom Cruise can't have the competition. As the Imperial Army marches to crush the rebellion, a grieving Katsumoto contemplates seppuku. Algren convinces him to fight and join the samurai in battle. The samurai use the Imperial Army's overconfidence to lure them to a trap. The ensuing battle inflicts massive casualties on both sides and forces the Imperial soldiers to retreat, knowing that the Imperial reinforcements are coming and defeat is inevitable. Katsumoto orders a suicidal cavalry charge on horseback. They basically just run into the fire. Just very three hundred. Yeah. Tom Cruise at the top of his lungs going, ah, let's stay together. Oh, what, what we missed before this big battle scene is him and Taka having that weird silent. She's like, you represent our family She's now. You murdered him. my husband. So now I'm going to give you my husband's. His blood's still on it. Don't worry yeah, about right, that. Right. Here's She's my, like dressing armor. him and it's like the most non-sexy, sexy scene that they could put in here. Right. Probably because none of them wanted to touch Tom Cruise. <laughs> Probably smelled like fish. <laughs> the samurai withstand an artillery barrage and break through Bagley's line. Algren kills Bagley in a really epic. He just like chucks a sword he at this He told him that he was going to do it. And he but, did. The samurai quickly mowed down by Gatling guns. That's okay, girl. I took Bagley into my hut, and I took care of him just like to, just like Tom Cruise got taken care of. Okay. <laughs> the Imperial captain, previously trained by Algren and horrified by the sight of the dying samurai, orders the soldiers to cease fire, outraging Omura. Katsumoto, mortally wounded, commits seppuku with Algren's help as the soldiers kneel in respect. Please, white man, I Jesus can't even perfect. kill myself. Can right. you help me? Girl, we're going to get there in a minute. <laughs> help me, white you're, man. You're beating me to the punch. <laughs> Later, as trade negotiations conclude, the injured Algren interrupts the proceedings. <laughs> Let me interrupt. I'm, I have something to say. I'm here. I'm Tom Cruise. Dude, it just lives in my head red free now. Stop. <laughs> I have a story to tell. <laughs> I, a white man, have something to say. (laughs) He presents the emperor with Katsumoto's sword and asks him to remember the traditions for which Katsumoto and his fellow samurai fought and died. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know you're trying to get to the end of this. It's like, let me, a white man, tell you about your traditions. He would have wanted it this way. Oh, I'm dying. I'm sorry. Girl, I know. I know. I'm sorry. The emperor realizes that while Japan should modernize, it cannot forget its own culture and history. He rejects the trade offer. And when Omara persists, the emperor tells him he has done enough. 
and that he will <laughs> seize Ormora's fortune and redistribute the wealth among the people. Ormora claims to be disgraced, and the emperor offers him a Katsumoto sword, saying that if the shame is too great, you can just commit seppuku. This I is our like pastime am- around here. The amount of people going around just saying, kill yourself. Like, we were really <laughs> shocked about There's it. There's a lot of that. And, like, like we were really shocked about it and she's all that where they're like just like all the other artists that are super famous you should kill yourself those girls are all over japan yeah <laughs> they're just going all over they're running you it's they're men and they're running the they're running the country <laughs> they have ponytails and everything <laughs> you should commit seppuku omura relents and leaves with his tail between his legs he did not commit seppuku, as requested. While various rumors regarding Algren's fate circulate, Graham concludes that he returned to the village to reunite with Taka. And now we ask ourselves, why should we give a shit? Why did Aaron pick this movie? I have two words for you. White savior. This is a perfect example. Because we have to talk about it. You yeah. can't have the good stuff without the bad shit. I mean, I feel like... Also, sidebar, we should give a shit about this movie only if you have Aaron's Japanese translations to go with them. Oh, I have, I have For whatever great... reason, my tra- my subtitles were not working. So Aaron sat next to the TV. <laughs> she was like, well, he's saying that the Emperor's be a little bitch. And that he needs to stop being a little bitch and step up. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like mine were a lot more... They, they were, were way con- better. They were condensed. <laughs> My he's, copy he's had. Saying, he's saying we're friends now, and I've accepted you into my guy. I don't speak Japanese. I just had a copy <laughs> with subtitles. <laughs> so this movie is. I think it was subcontext. It's really what you sure. had a copy of the context. I'm just summing it up for you, man. <laughs> so I feel like the problem is a bit of a a two sided coin. We have misrepresentation of native peoples, whatever that native land is. Then we also have this colonial ideal. I am the white god and the white savior. It happens in every movie. It happened in Fu Manchu. It happened in this one where they're like, mm. I demand to know what's going on here, even though I have no, I'm a newcomer. So f- let me give you the definition. Yes. So we all know exactly what this is by its definition merriam webster's defines white savior as no this is a cinematic trope in which a white central character rescues non-white often less prominent characters from unfortunate circumstances this reoccurs in an array of genres in american cinema wherein white protagonists are played as messianic figures who often gain some insight or introspection in the course of the rescuing that's happening of the non-white characters or occasionally non-human races Mm -hmm. alien races just as long as they're not white just non-white civilizations yes from whatever buttons you see when you select non-white or white (laughs) yeah (laughs) so they're there to save them from whatever plight they're going through The narrative trope of the white savior is one way that the mass communications medium of cinema represents the sociology of race and ethnic relationships by presenting abstract concepts such as mortality as characteristics innate racially and culturally to white people not to be found in non-white people. The white savior is often portrayed as a man who is out of place within his own society until he resumes the burden 
of racial leadership to rescue non-white minorities and foreigners from their suffering, such as white savior stories have been described as, quote, essentially grandiose, exhibitionistic, and narcissistic, end quote. Their fantasies of psychological compensation. I think that was a really good sort of uh, a sum up. I think it's as... I think so. That's an interesting... I thought that the white people being subpar within their own group and then going out and becoming a leader somewhere else. Yeah. That is such a perfect segue to that little this snippet. Movie. This well, movie. Well, to the, to the movie, but to the snippet that I wanted you to hold on to that I wanted to talk about. So people feeling remedial or inadequate in their own culture and going outside of themselves to seek something more. Mm seeing other people as having more, seeing ethnicity as being funnier because you're not funny in your whiteness. So my mom, she teaches and has seminars on diversity and inclusivity. And my boyfriend was meeting my mom and stepdad for the first time. He's not privy to the fact that we, after dinner, we like to debate. <laughs> Apparently that's our thing. So, <laughs> and he's not a debater. Surprise. So he was a little shocked. But I've taken some of my mom's seminars and like courses because she takes these courses and they're not like, we're going to teach you this, you be quiet. They're very immersive. They're very involved. And she asks you questions. And it's occurred a few times now, but she brought it up that someone felt that as a white person that they had no culture. So when they went to, in, in the context of the course, you're supposed to write down what your culture is, like if you have a favorite food or something that you had that growing up, something that brings you back into your culture. Mm. And majority of the white people that were in these classes could not list a food that they felt was relevant. Or moreover, they got stuck and their own perception of what culture was because they felt they didn't have anything to write down when in fact they did. That's interesting. So it became this interesting, it wasn't so much a debate as a very heavy conversation about what is white culture and how some people feel as though they have no culture. Ergo, that explains why you get suburban white kids that are like, I'm going to wear baggy pants and talk about Tupac. Literally had a guy tell me that he thought that he could say the N-word because he listened to Tupac's entire discography. It was like, you missed the entire point of Tupac. The whole point. There's a really great docuseries going on right now, directed by a dude who got his ass beat by Tupac's crew. <laughs> He's still coming back around to try to tell his story because he, as a Shakur, was a part of the Black Panther movement. His family was well indoctrinated in prison. It affected his childhood, affected the way kids around him were growing up. And this kid missed all of that. And he was just like, I like the sound of the music. And he says N-word a lot. And now I can say it because I listened to the whole thing. But you're not part of that project. And that's the point. And I was, this is why I wanted to bring up this conversation for a part of this problem episode was the fact that there are some kids that either double down on their culture and they're like, I'm wearing a kilt to my wedding, even that though I've me. never been to Scotland. I was <laughs> like, very <are> much <laughs> really obsessed with Ireland for many years. And I still love if I could, if I could move but to the home your, country, but that's I your would. Ties, right? That's your ties. You had foods. And then some people didn't get that because somewhere along the way, they lost those ties. One of the points of conversation being that when everybody else was escaping their hardships and their cultures, they were trying to remove themselves from that they mm -hmm. were trying to 
neutralize themselves, to blend in as best they could, not make it so overt of where they were from, to be demonized in any way. So a lot of those cultures, I feel like because they watered themselves down so much and became another thing, that those stories weren't passed on. I feel like storytelling is how we get a lot of those cultural significances, a lot of our ties to where we came from. Mm -hmm. And there was a something that happened in like the 70s and 80s where those stories, people didn't pass down the stories as much. Yeah. And as often, I feel like my parents didn't talk about stories as much as their parents talk about stories of where we came from. So it would make sense to me if for a lot of people who feel like they have nothing to just, oh, well, I see what everybody else has. I want to take that. But what you're not realizing is those people are holding on to those bits of their culture so hard and so firmly. And it's a part of who they are. It's a part of where they come from. It gives them these answers that you are so desperately seeking that you think you need to take it from them because they've done all the work. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about that. What do you think about that concept of white people feeling like they have no culture? I think it depends on the white person. That's what I was telling you Mm -hmm. off mic when we gently got into this. Um, Because I feel like if you're an Italian-American or an Irish-American or, you know, another of European descent, but, but I feel you like had it. Irish it was, and Italians were being, they people had, were pushing them into bad neighborhoods. Correct. So they had to but fight the, for themselves. Correct. And they still held on to their culture. Mm-hmm. I think it's specifically the white people who come from like Protestant, those English, those like Protestant English yeah. backgrounds where they didn't really have an identity more than being British colonials. They're like, we left that country because the food's nasty. And, and that's their, their ancestors haven't really gravitated towards anything except America. And I think that's where we get that obsessive nationalism for America because other countries right. are not like that. And I think those people who genuinely don't really have much of a they're feeling culture, lost. They gotta they gotta grab onto something and the America culture is the only thing that they can grab onto and it's they're feeling lost and it's a microcosm of other cultures and other cultures that have been stolen from other places or they came of their own will of their own free will in some cases but usually also to escape something else that was not as great Mm. but i've thought that this was a very interesting way to approach the subject of race as well as empathy and understanding instead of pointing out all the things in other cultures why can't we help people try to identify their own cultures more because no one's going to learn anything if you keep looking at other people people are inherently selfish and learn through doing so if you have to teach them through their own lens and then you can go hey you know how your favorite food and you ate this growing up well just this other culture has a favorite food too just like you do with kindergartners and preschoolers Mm -hmm. man Mm -hmm. So we're talking about like the need to identify with a culture. And I feel like that's a really good segue to talk about how Japan felt about this movie. Mm -hmm. Because I see this movie and this movie makes me cringe. Even though we have really amazing Asian actors who do (sighs) incredible. Honestly, all my favorite moments in this movie are all the ones where Tom Cruise Hiro isn't. Yuki Sonata. Oh, my Lord. Hero Yuki Sonata. Girl, you I'm glad we're c- sitting down. You can come and get it. I'm not, because I'm Woo. about to slide on my chair. I'm going to get a concussion, girl. Sheesh. 
And Ken Watanabe, girl. I Ken Watanabe. Such a crush oh my God. Ken Watanabe when I was younger. Duh. There's so many uh, hot Asian guys in this movie. Project Dagger, Hidden Dragon. I was like, you could fly through my forest anytime. Any day. Any day, boo. So, but I didn't know about Hiroyuki. I feel like yeah. if I had known about Hiroyuki before Younger Ken, one. I would have been like, hey, boo. He still looks like a snack. That man is aging so well. Right. Ugh. Snack so, all day. This movie did better in Japan than it did here. The critical reception in Japan I was. I want to be shocked, but I More than it. positive. Why? How? Tiomi Katsuda of the Mancini Shinban, which I think is one of their editorial papers, mm-hmm. thought that the film was, quote, a vast improvement over previous American attempts to portray Japan. Noting that director Edward Zwick, what a weird fucking last yeah. name, Zwick, quote, had researched Japanese history, cast well-known Japanese actors and consulted dialogue coaches to make sure that he didn't confuse the casual and formal categories of Japanese speech. Okay. I was like, so he Googled, but the latter part makes it, he did the research. He did the work a bit. Katsuda still found fault with the film's idealistic quote, storybook portrayal of the samurai stating quote, our image of samurai is that they were more corrupt. They were more like a mob. Yeah. Such as he which said, I got from the Seven Samurai. Mm-hmm. I got that they were like a rowdy gang that people were like they keep destroying our villages mm-hmm. and stealing all our food. Mm-hmm. He this said, seemed like they were the noble samurai yes, leader. Yes, set his teeth on edge. That was his last little thing. So I guess my question is, where is the line between racism and authentic representation? Because to a point, the Japanese feel like this is one of the best authentic representations. This gets into a conversation you and I have talked about in terms of not only racial representation, but even in terms of dating, where you're like, just because this is the best that you've had does not mean that it's a good thing. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Her quote hit me right off the bat where she was like, this is the best that America has given us so far. That's like... We can do better. Yeah. They give you a shit-covered sandwich and they take the shit off this time. And they're like, this is the best sandwich they've ever given us. Yeah, (laughs) That's what it feels like. So, I mean, this is the only movie we watched today with actual people (laughs) the representing Representing themselves oh Um, my god but i mean everything else was a the white savior complex is seen in so many movies and we're gonna touch on it in up and coming episodes this is we can't not talk about it at the rate that we scream at the screen when stuff like this happens this is why we did this whole season this is why we did this episode because it happens all the time and you may not notice it. I think that's what's so painful about that guy being like, this is my favorite movie. It was 2022 and it was still one of his favorite movies. You're still missing the point. He's oblivious. <laughs> Girl preach. But that's the point. We don't want to blame people for being oblivious. The Michael Che quote still stands. This is a teaching moment, not a shaming moment. And the fact that Fisher Stevens has gone on and talked about it. The fact that Hank Azaria has gone on and talked about Apu and talked about doing the work. It's a long journey. No one wants to work or read or understand other people other than themselves. It's a hard thing to do. But you won't be a better person and have a better understanding of what life is and why we're supposed to be on this planet if you don't try to input. Yeah. Input. Well, I think that's a that's a good moment. This has been a... Shake Very it off, girl. Shake it off. Ooh. Interesting, riveting last 
10 episodes. This was a crazy season. We had amazing guests. One of my favorite seasons. We learned a lot. We, it was a terribly fun introspective on the actors that have had to carve a life for themselves in a very white centric industry. Oh yeah. And I hope that you've all enjoyed the ride. Next, we're moving on to different adventures. Book it. Up next is book it. Our favorite Film adaptations of books that we read in school growing up. And for those, if book it sounds familiar, I was gonna say, if it do sounds you remember familiar, that it's all based on the Pizza Hut reading program? I don't know if you know this, but we love the 90s. We love so the we 90s. just base our podcast <laughs> off of the 90s and the 80s. And we're kicking things off with an episode chock full of Roll Doll. One of our so movies, excited. man. I think what better way to start off? Talking about books we read as kids and talking about Roald Dahl. I know. I know. But also, we're going to get into Roald Dahl. Spill that tea, girl. Speaking of racism and (laughs) (laughs) anti-Semitism. Just as a picture of Roald Dahl. (laughs) I know. Well, it's appropriate that we're going to England because we're about to spill the tea on that motherfucker. So we are watching Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory from 1971. The Witches from 1990, which I've never seen before, which nearly (sighs) made Aaron fall off the couch and james and the giant peach from 1996 so excited can't wait so excited don't forget to follow us on spotify to keep growing the show while you're over there don't forget to subscribe to our show so you can get awesome monthly bonus content that is only available for our subscribers we've been planning on so much stuff there's so much more content that is coming your way that's only going to be for our subscribers so get on that before we start releasing those also, don't forget to follow our socials. Aaron Malane official at all the things. Chloe Riggs makes things at Instagram. Instagram. The required viewing podcast on all the things. TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, you name Facebook. it. Facebook. And until next time, my friends, happy viewing. Happy viewing. This has been a required viewing network production. A big thank you to the RVP team. Director, writer, producer, host, Aaron Mullane. Social media manager, graphics, editor, producer, host, Chloe Riggs. As well as a big thank you to our guest contributors and the RVP community for supporting the show. This is required viewing.